Good morning. It's good to, again, it's always good to be with you and be up here to open up God's word. Um, again, I just want to reiterate that uh, I want to invite uh, anyone who's been visiting uh, to come to our members, uh, not members meeting, our welcome meeting uh, at the end of service. And then again tonight, uh, our meet and greet with Brett Wagner at six o'clock. So everyone's invited to that. So let's pray before we, we uh, dive in to the rest of uh, Jude's letter. Gracious Father, we praise you for your grace to us in saving us and giving us your Holy Spirit and giving us your word that by it we might know you, that we might be built up in this most holy faith that you have given us once and for all to the saints, this word that is sufficient for all things, for life and godliness. Help us now this morning uh, to understand these things and to live these things, to see your glory and to honor you with our lives every day. Amen. So Jude picks up where he left off in, uh, in verse 4. In, and uh, having made his case about the false teachers and, and the danger that they present to the church. And so hopefully now the church is ready and, and willing to uh, contend for the faith, as I trust we all are as well. In 17 through 23, he instructs the church what to do in the face of this threat, elaborating, elaborating on what contending for the faith means for us, what it looks like. And he does this in three parts. In verses, first part, verses 17 through 19, the church is to remember Remember the predictions of the apostles concerning the false teachers. Uh, in the second part, verses 20 through 21, the church is to keep themselves in the love of God. Part three, verses 22 through 23, the church is to reach out in mercy to those who have been affected by this false teaching. And then there's the last part, which is, the doxology, Jude's praise, his song of praise to God. So the first one, remember, verses 17 through 29. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, so we're to remember the prophetic words of the apostles. And Jude, it looks like he's quoting from 2 Peter 3.3. 3. In fact, 2 Peter 3 is pretty much parallel to Jude's uh, words in verses 5 through 16. But the, it's, it's, it's obvious that, that the apostles have been teaching this, this congregation as they were in many congregations. And... And Jude and the apostles and all of them were on the same page concerning these things of what it meant to the churches to have this threat of the false teachers. So the question arises, why 
does Jude quote the Apostle Peter in regards to the false teachers? Because he's essentially covered this material, but he gives us kind of this Reader's Digest view of, uh, of again, who the false teachers are and the threat they oppose to the church. So he's basically drawing attention to the apostles because he's gone through, in going through the last section, he used a lot of uh, Old Testament references and a few references from some other Jewish writings. And there was no doubt in anybody's mind that the Old Testament was the word of God. But Jude wants to make it clear to the New Testament that the writings and the teachings and the, and the preaching of the apostles is the word of God. They are the, the uh, ambassadors of Christ. And you know, we understand it and accept it now. We see it as God's word. But then the false teachers were scoffing at the apostles and, and questioning their authority and, and seeking to establish their own. They didn't want anybody to get in their way of what they wanted to do, their own ungodly passions, as Jude puts it. And we see this in Paul's ministry as well, that he had to deal with these false teachers. In regard to the Corinthian church, he has to make a defense of his ministry to the Corinthians. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 12, where he's forced to make a defense rather reluctantly but he does it for the sake of the flock. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 6, and I'm just going to pull a few things out of these, these verses. He says, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you accept a different gospel. And then he says, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. Waxing sarcastic here. Even though I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. So these false teachers were coming to the church and criticizing Paul and saying, you know, Look at him, he's not that impressive. You know, he doesn't speak that well. And, and the church was taken in by these people. And in the Greek culture, and even in ours today, it seemed to, it mattered more how you said something than what you said. It, persuasion is what mattered. They, they, call, you know, they, were, they, they cared about rhetoric. They had schools of rhetoric just teaching people how to speak and to speak persuasively, and they would go to listen to people speak. And it didn't matter what they were talking about. It just mattered how good they sounded. So Jude wants the church to know and always remember that the apostles were sent by Christ himself. They are his representatives, his ambassadors, speaking his word, his teaching, and in writing on Christ's behalf. They are giving us, and they have given us, the very words of God, and these are all kept for us today, preserved for us in our, what we call our New Testament. And so everything 
that someone teaches is under the authority or under the scrutiny of the word of God, and they must be judged according to it. God's word is the only standard that can bind our conscience, and as a reformer so aptly expressed it, no one can say, you must do this, or you must believe this, except by the word of God. It's what we call uh, the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. It's part of it. So the teachings of the apostles, the New Testament carries the same weight as the Old Testament, and we understand that, but again, Jude was pressing this home to the church. And in the first century, they had not yet compiled the New Testament writings. They had, they had the Gospels, they had the epistles, the letters that the apostles wrote, and they were being copied and passed around by the thousands. And we have thousands of manuscript fragments and manuscripts today, still from the, from the first few centuries of the church. So the church then, as we do today, must always be on our guard, looking out for those who lead the flock astray. Not everyone is equally discerning. Not everyone knows the scripture as well as they could. But we need to look out for one another, humbly correcting and encouraging one another and doing this wisely and gently and humbly receiving instruction and correction ourselves from our brothers and sisters. So we're all in this together. We're all encouraging one another together. So we all speak the word of God to one another. So those who cause division, the false, false teaching, it causes division. It leads, the weak, it leads the weak and unconverted astray and in a much danger. And many false teachers are in it just for the money. And I've seen that in our day. And others, probably most, are themselves deceived and ensnared by the devil and consequently leading others astray. As Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. They are devoid of the spirit. It's ironic that most false teachers are very charismatic, gifted communicators, they come off as if they're the most spiritual person around, that they alone have the truth, they alone have understanding, when in reality they have neither the Holy Spirit nor the truth. So Jude wants to make this contrast clear. False teachers do not belong to Christ. They do not belong to the flock of God. They have only, like their master, come to steal and destroy They offer abundant life, but it's only a cheap imitation that leads away from the only one who can give us true life, and that abundantly. Number two, section two, part two. We need to keep. Verses 20 through 21, Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's four commands here. Build, pray, keep, and wait. But the main command is keep yourselves in the love of God. The other three complement it. 
we will consider uh, keep yourselves in the love of God first. We just have to ask first, is the love of God here referring to God's love for us or our love for God? Since Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that's in Romans 8.39. It must be our love for God. Then we're to do that which helps us to grow in that love that, that, that captures our affections, that reinforces those things. So loving God, as we know, is the big command. In Deuteronomy, we read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And I don't think there's any one of us here that does that perfectly. Um, there's only one who does, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit is at work within us. He has put this love of God in our hearts. Paul says in Romans, God love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we're told, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The Holy Spirit is doing that work in us. He did that work in us when he made us new in Christ Jesus. He implanted that love within our hearts. Before that, we had no love for God. It is the Holy Spirit's work, his gracious work that he does. So we all desire to grow in our love for God, and God has graciously given us all we need to do this. He has given us his word, which he uses to gradually transform us, and that is why he commands his church to preach the word. We sing the word, we pray God's word. And this love for God, in regards to contending for the faith, it really works like a shield against sin and against error, because our affections are focused on God and away from the things of this world. So we always want to be building ourselves up, building yourselves up in this most holy faith, as he says. And as he goes on to say, and praying in the Holy Spirit. It seems to be assumed here in this letter that we as a church are doing these things. And not only on Sunday in our gathering as we meet together, but our other times as we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we hang out, we have Bible study, we get together and pray. We, um, anytime that we get together, it's always that opportunity to affirm one another and encourage one another to speak the, God, the word of God to one another. And the Holy Spirit uses that to, again, build in our hearts this love for God and to build us up in this most holy faith, to be encouraged in it. We are praying in the Holy Spirit. Our prayers are guided and enabled by the Holy Spirit. We are weak. But the God to whom we pray 
is mighty and he has given us his spirit to help us in our weakness. We are told that the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he searches hearts. He searches heart, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's from Romans 8, 26 and 27. When we go before the throne of grace, the Spirit is with us to help us pray. And we have his words that give us the foundation for our confidence to enter into the most holy place to make our requests before God. In fact, the scripture says that Christ has opened up the curtain that we might enter in with confidence. So when we pray for one another, our friends, neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we might think that, well, it's the least I can do. Well, the reality is, I don't think there's anything greater that we can do, given the reality of who we are and this world in which we live. It's a struggle for most of us to grasp the efficacy of our prayers because we can't see what's going on and, and we don't see things happening, you know, when and how we hope they will. But listen to what James says. He says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. James 5.13. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 5.16. He references Elijah who prayed that it would not rain. You know, it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed again that it would rain, and it did rain. So God is working. Just like God worked through Elijah's prayers, God is working through our prayers. So we need to remember, you know, our prayers aren't like some magic spell, okay? It's the God to whom we pray that makes him powerful. And we can go to our Father as dearly loved children and to present our requests, knowing that our Father, who is powerful and gracious and wise, will give us all that we need. We ask for many things, some things we don't know if it's God's will to grant, but we ask with confidence that we, he will hear us and he, he will wisely do what is good and right. And we ask for other things that we do know are his will, the things that he expressly tells us in his word that he wants to do, like sanctify us, to make us holy to transform us into the image of Christ. So when we pray for the church to be built up and strengthened, we know he'll do it. When we pray for our brothers and sisters to remain strong in the faith, we know that he will be faithful. We don't know how or when, but we know that our Lord will never fail. These things should compel us with loving and grateful hearts to be faithful in prayer, to be faithful to pray for one another in knowing 
that God is working in and through what he has called us to do. And doing all these things, we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. We are growing in our love for God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now a question comes to mind when I read this, and maybe you're thinking too. But don't we already have mercy and eternal life in Christ? Why would we be waiting for it? The answer is twofold. We've received mercy and eternal life in Christ. We have received it. But we have to understand that God speaks of our redemption in different ways. As you read through the scriptures, you will find that it speaks of our salvation in three different ways or tenses. Past, present, and future. We have been saved when we first believed. We are being saved in that we are growing in Christ, being kept and sanctified. And we will be saved when Christ returns, consummating our redemption in the resurrection. It is important as we follow Christ, contending for the faith, building up, praying in the Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, that we keep the reality of God's mercy before us, that he has had mercy on us, that he continues to be merciful to us, and will pour out his mercy on us in the age to come. This will help us to understand our current weaknesses and struggles with our remaining sin and the weaknesses and struggles of our brothers and sisters so that we who have been shown mercy will show mercy to each other. And so we get to the third part, mercy. Verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. First, have mercy on those who doubt. How are we to do this? Doubt can be manifested in many ways. Those who doubt may not express it in a humble manner, so it may not be easy to be merciful to them. They may, be, they may come off as arrogant or, or um, even combative, opposing. So we must use care, praying for wisdom, reaching out in kindness. We must not snuff out that smoldering wick or cut down that bruised reed like our Lord as a good and wise shepherd who bears the weak. He carries the sick. So we need to uphold one another with meekness and care, which we ourselves so desperately need. I want to look at a passage from Timothy that gives us a little more insight into this, I think, and how our attitude should be. It's from 1 Timothy 2, 24 and 26. And he's speaking to Timothy about how to deal with those who oppose him, those who 
probably in most cases, are doubting. And so let me read that for you. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you see this picture here. It's almost like I can see somebody in Timothy's face. And I can, so I see five things here that I think would be helpful for us as we seek to be gentle with those who doubt. Number one, not quarrelsome. Okay? Every question or thing that somebody brings up that's just you know, kind of out in left field or, or they just don't understand is not the opportunity for your next debate. Okay, we need to be, we need to pull it back. It's not about winning uh, a theological debate or winning Bible trivia. It's about building up our brothers and sisters. It's about drawing people to Christ graciously and gently. Kind to everyone. And consider the kindness that God has shown to us. When we came to Christ, all we knew is that Christ saved us. I mean, that's all I knew. And, and I mean, I was anxious to learn as much as I could and to understand what God had done in me. But God brings us along. And so everybody's not at the same place. So we need to show kindness like the kindness that God has shown to us in helping us to understand these glorious truths that he has given us in his word. Correcting with gentleness. Again, God gently corrects us. And, I mean, just when, as we read through our word, as we read through his word, you know, year after year, day after day, he is showing us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, every time I read through the Bible, I mean, I'm seeing stuff that just hits me like, you know, where have I been? Or I just didn't understand this passage. I mean, it just, the Holy Spirit just brings things to light. We have teachers and pastors and that, uh, that God has provided for the church to build us up and to help us understand these things. And we have one another. You know, we have our Bible studies. We discuss these things among one another. Seek to understand. God is in control over them and the situation. And we see this where he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. That means that the person that we're not even capable of coming, of understanding what we need to understand, much less repenting of either our error, of our unbelief, whatever the case may be, God's in control. And that affords us the ability to be gentle and patient. We just don't have to rush in. If we don't get the whole thing laid out 
from Genesis to Revelation in, in one sitting, you know what? God's in control. He knows where that person's at. Whether we're fighting for that person's sal salvation or just trying to keep a brother or a sister from error, God's in control. And we can trust him. And this battle is not of flesh, but spiritual. Again, we see this, that they, they are in the snare of the devil. The devil messes with unbelievers and with believers. We have an enemy. And we need to realize that. That's why we need to pray in the Holy Spirit. Because it's totally beyond us to do what God calls us to do as a fellowship, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. We do this by telling them the gospel. Salvation is being delivered from the wrath of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You probably heard that evangelism being likened to uh, pulling someone out of a burning house, rousing them out of their sleep and dragging them to safety. The, uh, the unbeliever in their self-righteous slumber has no idea of the danger that they're in. And we're responsible to warn them, to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ will save all the, who believe in him, who trust in him. But it's God alone who can sovereignly drag them out of that burning house. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is a picture of those who are struggling in sin and are not doing well in the battle. They're ensnared by it. And they're in desperate need of a brother or sister to help them. We're to approach them with mercy and fear. Mercy because we know that we could be in the very same situation. More likely, we've been in that situation and someone in mercy has come to help us. With fear, because we are, or should be, well aware of our weaknesses and propensities towards sin. The Apostle Paul warns of this in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted, you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so in this train of thought, Jude says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We must see sin for what it is. We have this picture here from the Levitical law of being ceremonially uh, contaminated, being ceremonially un unclean by coming in contact with a contaminated garment. So how much more care should we take in dealing with sin so that we ourselves are not drawn into another's transgressions? So when in mercy we seek to rescue others from the danger of sin, we must make sure that we ourselves do not fall into the same danger. It is something we must do 
is something we do by God's grace. So remember the apostles' words. Remember God's words. Keep it in mind. Meditate on it. Always let it be at the forefront of our minds. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Build, pray, and wait. Show mercy to all just as you were shown mercy. In all these things, we contend for the faith and for one another. And lastly, the doxology, this wonderful song of praise to God. Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The subheading in the ESV says doxology. It's a, it's a word made up of two Greek words, doxa and logos. Doxa meaning glory. Lagos meaning word. It's a song of praise to God's glory. And it's sometimes glory being sometimes defined as, as the sum of God's manifold perfections. We see these uh, in various places in the New Testament. We see the, we see, even see it in the Old Testament breaking out in song and praise to God after maybe a, after the deliverance at the Red Sea, we see that. We see it in Paul's letter to the Romans. At the end of chapter 11, after he's elaborated on these rich mysteries of the gospel, it seems like he almost can't contain himself. And he breaks out and he sings. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And you can, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can see it. It's in Romans chapter 11 at the end of the chapter, verses 33, 36. And so to Jude, at the end of this letter, in view of the great faith that God has given to us, his gracious calling, the love that he has for us, and this preserving grace that we have in Christ through all things, he sings out, the excellencies of God our Savior. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, God is able to keep us in all things, through all things. We saw this in verse 1, and we spent a bit of time on it. That we are called, beloved, and kept. That glorious reality, this this fact that we are called by God, that we are beloved of the Father, and we are kept in Christ undergirds this whole letter. And now it springs up again at the end for us to relish in. Remember what Jesus taught us and the apostles elaborated on. God keeps his people. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, 
is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10, 27 through 30. Can he be more emphatic? What more can be said to drive this home? I mean, we are being kept by God, Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a triune endeavor, and they will do it. There's another place in Scripture that drives this home. Uh, Romans 8, 31 through 39. You might want to read it later. But Paul's uh, conclusion of Romans chapter 8. But doesn't the Bible say that those who endure to the end will be saved? And that's true. And it's true because Christ keeps us. Do your thoughts ever condemn you? Christ has borne your condemnation and taken it away. Do your sins testify against you? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We need to remember what God has said and not what the enemy says or not what our own random thoughts say. Christ is our righteousness. All our obedience will not add one cent to the perfect payment that Christ has made for our sin. In fact, it's almost an insult to God's grace to think otherwise. before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not condemnation, but joy. Great joy. Not fear of judgment, but great joy. Not, oh, there's so-and-so. There's Tom. He's been so lame. <laughs> but let him in, you know, saved by grace and all that. <laughs> No, but blameless with great joy. Saints, on that day, our God will rejoice over us. He rejoices over us now, and we will rejoice in him. And all the hosts of heaven will rejoice in the grace of God who brought about such a glorious redemption to save sinners like us. No sorrow, no tears, only great gladness such as we have never known. Because the only God, our Savior, has saved us through Christ, our Lord. So what can we say of this great faith that God has given us? What can we say of this salvation that was ordained within the counsel of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world? 
that in the saving of the people, he should make his power and glory known over all creation. That he should be worshipped and enjoyed freely in the ages to come by a people holy and beloved. A people redeemed by the blood of God's spotless lamb. What more can I say? I think Jude should have the last word here. Verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's now come together to the Lord's table with great joy. I want to read to you from Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's in his presence with great joy. This sacrament of communion in which we remember what Christ has done to save us. And we look forward to that day when we all together with him will celebrate with great joy this feast in all its fullness. So I invite you to join us. If you have trusted in Christ, are baptized committed to this church or another local church and to join us in the Lord's Supper. Come forward, take the bread and the cup and return to your seats. And when we have all uh, sat down, we will take it together. All right. So we'll have uh, another elder come up and we'll serve it and um, we'll take it together. <laughs>